Welcome to Inside the Writer's Cafe on webtalkradio.net. I'm Cheryl Nason, and each week it's my pleasure to bring you conversations with top authors of fiction and nonfiction, and we usually talk about their latest work. Today we have a special show. We're featuring only one author. And that's a very special author. I know I'm not supposed to take sides. I know I'm not supposed to have preferences. But Jeffrey Deaver is one of my favorite authors and one of my favorite people. And we'll be talking with him today about the latest Lincoln Rhyme novel, The Burning Wire, published by Simon & Schuster. Now, Jeffrey Deaver attended the University of Missouri, and he received his law degree from Fordham University. He's the international best-selling author of 26 novels, sold in 150 countries, and translated into 25 languages. He's received The Steel Dagger and The Short Story Dagger from the British Crime Writers Association, the Nero Wolf Award, and is a three-time winner of the Ellery Queen Reader's Award for Best Short Story of the Year. He's also been nominated for six Edgar Awards from the Mystery Writers of America. His books have been made into motion pictures and television movies. And, Jeffrey, that's always such an overwhelming introduction. It's such a pleasure. Well, Cheryl, I I have to say, I'm I'm humbled. I better sit down now because (laughs) I feel exhausted after all that. (laughs) Who is this guy, right? Yeah, exactly. I'm looking behind me. It must be somebody else you're talking about. (laughs) You know, those are pretty impressive credentials, Jeff, seriously. I mean, when you and I sit down to talk, I mean, it's just Jeff and Cheryl talking to each other. And when I go back... And I look at all the things that you've done. I mean, really, wow. Well, of all the, I have to say, just uh, just as an aside here, Cheryl, uh, of many of the awards you've uh, you've mentioned, the ones that I think I'm the, the proudest of are the um, uh, the reader awards. Uh, you know, some are given awards are given to you by peers, uh, like the, uh, of course, the Academy Award. There's a uh, given to you by a, a group of people involved in the industry, and that's a very wonderful thing, and I've gotten some of those awards. But the ones that really mean the most to me are um, uh, awards where the, the fans have uh, gone to the trouble to voice an opinion about what I've done, because that's that's what I, I, I really do this work for, for the fans themselves. So um, I'm, I'm kind of pleased I've got some of those sitting up on my shelf right now. And, you know, that's one of the things that I like about you particularly, is that you always give your fans credit and you always talk about them up front and you're very honest about you write for your fans. Oh, I think it's it's absurd if you hear an author or frankly any uh, creator of a, an artistic type product, whether it's commercial uh, fiction like I write or a um, say an artistic uh, film or a poem or, or even uh, experimental fiction when when the creator the writer or filmmaker says oh I do this for myself of course I have a vision and I want to expand my readership uh, I want to make them stretch I want to make them work I, I think that's that's crazy there's nothing wrong with challenging uh, your readers to have a have a good time but you have to keep in mind that they are who you do this for. This is an act of communication by definition. So you you don't write for yourself. You write for somebody else. And you you may choose to write for a very small audience, say an artistic writer. uh, Someone comes to mind is uh, Donald Barthelme, a writer, uh, I guess I'd say experimental, postmodern, New Yorker-type fiction. 
and nonetheless, he still knew his audience. He wrote for a fairly small audience, but nonetheless, he knew who that audience was. And I, I just think it's important to keep that in mind when you sit down at your word processor. Well, you do this very well, and The Burning Wire is obviously no exception. This is really intriguing. Before you and I go too far, because I know we tend to just jump right in and start talking <laughs> yeah, about Yeah, we things. do that, yeah, don't we? <laughs> I know, we do. Let's take the listeners with us a little, and let's give them just an overview. This is a complex book, and I think giving them an overview is hard to do. Mm. Well, the um, the Burning Wire is the ninth in my Lincoln Rhyme series, and Lincoln Rhyme was the character I introduced in The Bone Collector uh, some years ago. And the the Burning Wire opens with a scene of uh, some uh, horror, <laughs> a um, um, an individual has gotten into the New York City power grid. And rather than do the typical uh, cliche-ridden terrorist act of shutting down the grid, which we've seen in a lot of generally pretty bad made-for-TV movies, he does something <laughs> different. He starts moving the electricity around in the grid so that finally at, uh, at one point it builds up to a point where it, it leaps out. It, this actually can happen. It, it produces an arc flash that's basically a big lightning bolt, a man-made lightning bolt. And uh, I learned about these things, by the way, on the what I'm calling the definitive source of all human knowledge, YouTube. And, <laughs> and, and well, I, it shares that with Wikipedia and YouTube, as far as I'm concerned, are the source of the repository of all wisdom nowadays. But anyway, uh, your your listeners can go to YouTube and just type in Arc Flash and take a look at these things. And they're um, lightning bolts, and they can if they're if you're standing near it, that's that's it for you. Well, the, the the villain is manipulating the grid to create these things and to do some other kind of nasty stuff with energy and power. We don't quite know why. Well, Lincoln and Amelia, Amelia Sachs, his uh, both romantic partner and professional partner, get on the case. And the, the book is essentially a, um, a, a typical diva. It takes place over a short period of time, a cat-and-mouse chase, as Lincoln and Amelia try to find out who this fellow is and stop him. Meanwhile, he turns the tables on them and tries to stop them. Uh, the book has, as most of mine do, what I found to be some rather interesting information on power, on energy, on electricity, on alternative forms of uh, energy. And, you know, we can't look <laughs> look at the Gulf of Mexico <laughs> lately and not know that this is something we have to be much more aware of. And then, of course, at the end of the book, there's a surprise ending, followed by a surprise ending, followed by a surprise ending, because <laughs> I love my well twist and turn. So, so that, in a, in a, in a nutshell, is, the, uh, is the, the burning wire. In a nutshell, and yet that nutshell is just absolutely jam-packed. Not only oh, – let's talk about Lincoln Rhyme for a minute. Huh. There may be some of our listeners who really don't know him as a character. We may have someone who – has never read a Jeff Deaver book, and they think, who is this Lincoln Rhyme character? And I find him fascinating myself. Sure. Because he, you have him evolve. Yeah, um, and I'll, a little background there, too. Um, going back, this is about 13 or 14 years now, when I was thinking about writing The Bone Collector, I I had in the back of my mind, as I always do when I write a book, this this general theory. I want to give my readers what they are expecting, and that is 
sort of what I just described, a very fast-paced book. It takes place over a couple days, has surprises in it, a bit of esoteric or kind of interesting information. But So that's the Deaver formula. But I always want to do something that's that's unique, something that's different to, to keep the um, keep the excitement up. And I was thinking, uh, again, going back about 13, 14 years, well, what would I like to do? I have an idea. I'm going to create a very different sort of hero. I'm going to create a hero that we really haven't seen before. I didn't know whether this idea was going to work or not, but I, I thought I'll give it a try. What 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 could I what could I lose in in one book? So I made my hero Lincoln Rhyme, a a brilliant forensic scientist, former head of New York City Police Department crime scene, but I also made him a, a quadriplegic. Uh, he's paralyzed from the the neck down, and I did that. Um, essentially because, well, there were, there were really two reasons. One was very, I guess, practical in terms of uh, crime uh, writing. Uh, the other was more philosophical. The practical reason was that I thought, um, I, I want my hero to be a Sherlock Holmes, a new Sherlock Holmes for this era, but the kind of character who had to outthink the villain. He had no other resources. He could not pull a gun and, and shoot the bad guy. He couldn't walk into a bar and kind of quip with the bartender, um, you know, exchange these clever phrases and then uh, get get some clues out of him that way. He, he had to sit in his room and simply think who the uh, villain was and try to play a mental chess match with him. Well, that was the practical reason I made Lincoln disabled. The, the, the more philosophical reason was that I thought, well, you know, you know we're, we all have something about our physical incarnations we're not happy with. We maybe have a little bit of arthritis, or maybe uh, you know we're heavier than we'd like to be, or we're skinnier than we'd like to be. But but what we really all are, in essence, is our our minds. And I thought there's a chance that this could this a character like this could resonate with everybody. And sure enough, I guess I got that. I've made a lot of mistakes in my career, but but that's one I got right. People absolutely seem to love Lincoln Rhyme all over the world. Hugely successful uh, character. I think part of that is because your readership is intelligent. And we like him because he is an intellectual. And he ponders things. And he thinks things. And he's a little... His people skills are not always the best. <laughs> that was very tax. Cheryl, you must run for politics someday because that that was very well well said. I, in um, um, he's been called a curmudgeon, which I think is a great a great word. He, he is um, he can be a bit gruff sometimes, and you certainly don't want to get on his get on his bad side under no. any circumstances. <laughs> but he's wonderful, and this, one of the other things that you do that you have such a talent for is choosing, how can I put this, choosing very commonplace ways to just scare the pants off of us. <laughs> Electricity. Well, well, that's uh, that, of course, is always in the back of my mind as well. Now, I'm not the sort of writer who would create a, uh, I guess I could call it a Stephen King scenario. Uh, I, I mean, I know Stephen King. He's a, one of the writers of the the last and the current century and he will people in 500 years will be reading his books i personally am not a big uh, fan of uh, ghosts and goblins and apocalyptic sort of things i like terrors that are much more personal mm-hmm. and when you think about um, say the opening of the bone collector 
go to a strange city you're not too familiar with, you get in a taxi cab late at night, and the driver takes off going some direction, and you think, I, I, I think huh, maybe we should be going the other way. Isn't that where the hotel is? And yet uh, when you try to bang on the little plexiglass divider, he ignores you, and then you reach for the doors to leap out, and there are no locks on the, the doors. You're, you're trapped. Well, a little thing like that is utterly terrifying, but it's also very, very plausible. Now, with the burning wire, my villain uh, not only creates these terrible arc flash things, but he gets into people's houses and their offices and um, uh, apartments, and he, he plays with the electric circuitry. And so you don't know if you go to turn on a light switch whether you're going to turn on the light switch or you're going to be uh, you're going to be zapped. And that's the kind of paranoid I just love to instill in my readers. Oh, and you did. You know, every time we talk, I go back to um, the first time that I ever interviewed you, and you were. It was the the blue nowhere. Oh, right. Mm-hmm. And you had me. I was working at my computer at night, and the blue nowhere is about a, a cyber stalker. And you had me sitting there, and I'm watching my computer. And, and in that book, you had described things that computers started to do. And I'm, of course, you've gotten so into my head. I'm thinking, <laughs> oh no. <laughs> and of course, everything that I described in the book um, was the, in the Blue Nowhere, for instance, that that could have been something done by a very nefarious, evil person, are also things that computers actually do very harmlessly. So, so that you would uh, you would find, for instance, the screen freezing at some point, and all our screens freeze from time to time. Well, well, uh, of course, I suggested it was because the killer was was looking through the little monitor in your camera in your the little camera in your your monitor and, and staring at you or things like that but but uh when it was completely innocent but i just wanted that shiver to run up and down your spine and it does and this one with electricity i mean the idea and you do have people are so unsuspecting and you have several scenes where just cataclysmic things happen there's one in an elevator that's just horrendous I think people are going to be in much better shape after reading this book because they're going to be using stairs in high rises. There's no way they're going to get into elevators anymore. So, but I really like and the cast of characters. I mean, you have Fred Del Rey, who is this FBI agent, who's the undercover guy, the old school guy, who does things the old way, and he's got this new boss, Tucker McDaniel who's this, got this big, long title, special agent in charge of the New York office of the FBI, and those two men could not be more different. And there's something going on between the two of them because McDaniel talks about, you know, uh, the cloud, and he talks about all this, this stuff that's esoteric, and you hear, we hear Lincoln Ryan thinking, what? You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, there is, um, of course, I, I live uh, on the East Coast and uh, have a place outside of Washington, D.C., and I know people in uh, the security agencies and in, in government and in business, and there is there's a, a whole different language. You almost need a, a dictionary sometimes talking to these folks, and it seems that the younger ones are maybe a little more attached to the language than they are attached to the substance of, of what they're doing and certainly very enamored of the high technology aspects of, of the job. And that's true, I guess, in any any corporation. When when it comes right down to it, certainly those the new systems, the new computers, the new 
uh, tracking and surveillance systems are very important. But I think as we've learned from uh, from the, the wars over in the Middle East, uh, that you know spy satellites and and surveillance can only get you so far. You need the human factor. And so um, McDaniel and um, and Fred Delray have this um, this conflict, running conflict about which is. Um, which is better, and in fact, Delray's uh, whole job and perhaps even his freedom are put at risk because he makes some decisions based on the old way of doing uh, of doing crime solving. But, but Cheryl, see, those are some of the multiple layers I like to work into the book, the subplots that, of course, have to do with the main story, but but still are, are I, I guess I could call them, you know, discrete stories unto themselves, and that I think propel the the book along. I agree with you, and I think that that because you are so adept at those kinds of sometimes tiny subplots, we as readers, I think, are enriched by your characters. And I think those subplots and those interactions that in one way or another really add to the story also add to the richness of the character and and give those characters a heartbeat and breath sounds for us as readers. And I think that's one of the reasons that you're so successful is because you're just really good at that. <laughs> well, well, I very much uh, appreciate that. And for me, it's a bit of a a, a balancing act because uh, as you and I have talked, I I I love my plots. I spend as 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 you know eight, seven, eight months doing nothing but outlining the book before I write it. And so the the story is um, pretty much set in stone, and it's a good solid plot. That I, I know I'm comfortable doing that, but it's also very important to make sure that the characters are living, breathing human beings, because the best plot in the world is going to be useless if you see a cardboard cutout or a, a I guess maybe a cartoon-type villain or cartoon-type hero, uh, the plot doesn't really mean anything because we don't care in our hearts about what happens to that person. Really good point. And Amelia Sachs, and, I mean, we can talk about, see, there's so much for us to talk about, and we just only have 30 (laughs) minutes. And here we've got the Lincoln Rhyme and Amelia Sachs. They work as partners, and when they're together in in the office, they have this almost non-verbal agreement that they work as partners and they don't really uh, the personalities don't come into this but then it really does because there's a very strong bond between these two characters they really care about each other they oh really sure love each other. yeah that's um one of the, uh, the the subjects that comes up perhaps most frequently in my uh, fan letters and and on, on book tour uh, i, I People are, of course, very interested in technical aspects of, in the case of the burning wire, oh, where can I learn more about this aspect of electricity? Um, What is um, a a plot development? How did you come up with that idea? That's interesting. But most of them are questions like, are Lincoln and Amelia ever going to get married? (laughs) Of course. You're not going to break them up, are you, for heaven's sake? So it's it's the, uh, I affectionately call it the soap opera aspects of the book that that move people uh, just as much as the, what I hope is the exciting plot, and that's you have to you have to include that. That's that's part of crime fiction nowadays. The relationships, and you've got this very strong female character. You you do really well with your female characters. I like this Andy Jensen character oh, yeah. who is characterized as the head of Algonquin Consolidated Power and Light 
thinly disguised sort of as Con Edison, I right, assume. Right. Uh, right. Well, uh, they, they basically uh, they, they share the same, basically the same place on the East River, but I, I changed the name. I changed the name to protect myself, basically. Don't blame you. <laughs> Your electric bill might have been really. Right. Yeah, that, that, that's right. I, I could have said BP, but that would have been not a probably a very wise choice at all. So. <laughs> well, the. I thought that the Algonquin Consolidated Power and Light piece is interesting because we see we have several suspects that we look at that are connected with Algonquin, and we've got Andy Jensen, who's the the big boss in charge, and happens to be an Andy with an I, and it's a woman. Mm-hmm. But we have another character who's really a secondary character that I really, really, really like, and that's the Charlie Summers character. He's yeah, Charlie was my favorite. He was very fun to create. Now, he, he works for the power company, but his office is on the other side of what they call the burn. And the burn is the uh, the, the huge turbine. Uh, well, it's almost it's as big as a, a, a massive factory. It's uh, one room that's 100 feet high, and they burn. Uh, nowadays, they burn natural gas, but they, they used to burn oil and coal in this massive turbine room, and it's described as hell. It's... 110 degrees inside, and there's smoke and fumes everywhere. And his office is on the other side of that. All the uh, the major executives have a nice suite of offices on on the street side, but his is tucked away underneath this, uh, uh, you know, very uh, kind of a frightening and loud industrial area. And he is the alternative energy maven at um, Algonquin, and it, it kind of tells you how he is treated, whether he's a, really a serious part of the company or not. But he, in fact, is a genius. He's sort of a new Thomas Edison, and he, he comes up with these brilliant ideas to save energy, to make sure it's used much more efficiently. And uh, we, I guess we could put him in the, the, the green energy category, although he's, he's um, more realistic than that. He knows that we will always have oil, we will always have nuclear energy, but there are many, um, many ways to supplement that. So I think he presents a, a realistic view of the, uh, the, uh, the green approach to uh, energy conservation. But there's maybe more to him than we think. <laughs> and you have him invent things that you made up, which I just thought was astonishing when you told me that. I have ideas that um, I I probably should get a patent for some of these things, although realistically I'm a complete idiot when it comes to math and science, so I'm sure that there are, you know, probably 13-year-old kids 10 years ago who got patents on the things that I I, brilliantly have come up with now. Um, But I I did have a lot of fun just, just sitting down and saying, well, what? What would I do to try to save electricity? And um, actually, I had gone to see some friends of mine who have a, a an, an almost entirely green house, and mm-hmm. to see some of the brilliant devices that are available now to conserve energy in a residential uh, setting and, and to generate energy too, and, and even in a residential setting, are quite amazing. And I think it it will be the wave of the future, and we certainly. Uh, I, I'm going to mention again, look down at the Gulf, and uh, we we definitely need to do something. Well, I would be remiss if I don't mention one of the important subplots. It's important that they understand, since Rhyme is Holmes, we have to have his Moriarty. And here's <laughs> yes. the watchmaker, yeah, Richard Logan. Yep. And he is involved in this subplot that actually involves Mexico. And yeah, I was... Um, 
again, always reading through my, my emails, and uh, people keep saying, uh, what about this character whom, whom I introduced, I think, in the, um, the cold moon uh, about mm-hmm. four years ago? And he is somebody who is uh, a villain. He is a for-hire criminal, primarily an assassin, but he'll do anything bad if the money's right. But he's, he's absolutely brilliant, and he constructs these plots with the um, the diligence that he uses when he pursues his avocation, which is making watches. I don't mean big clocks, but but he makes tiny, small little timepieces and, and is in love with them. Well, um, what better type of Moriarty than uh, than a character like that could I have? My fans keep saying we need to see him come back again, and um, <laughs> I, you know I don't want to make him the main villain in. Um, in, in all of my books, but I want him in the periphery, and I want Lincoln to uh, continue to pursue him. So I uh, have him doing something really nasty down in uh, down in Mexico, and I th- I think readers are going to enjoy that uh, he makes a reappearance here. He's a little bit of a mosquito for Lincoln at this particular <laughs> point in time because here he's so involved in all of this electricity and trying to figure out is this terrorism. We have these suspects. Is this real? And all the time it's buzzing over here in his ear about the watchmaker and what's and, and some and, and he meets actually Lincoln meets a a, a very colorful character down in uh, down in Mexico. Well, uh, I, we should point out Lincoln is always in New York, but he is uh, speaking with this character down in Mexico City, Rudolfo Lu, uh, Luna. Luna, my my Spanish is not so good, I'm afraid, but he is a um, uh, a character who works for the uh, Mexican Federal Police and is. Um, and it actually forms a, a rather unlikely friendship with uh, with Lincoln. Um, and I, I won't say anything more, but it, some of my uh, fans may remember it's not necessarily a good idea to become a, a friend of Lincoln Ron. But I'm not <laughs> going to I'm not going to give anything away other than that. So that's true. Well, we've got to talk about this upcoming project. You are about to write a new James Bond novel, and I'm just fascinated by this. I can't wait to get my hands on this. Um, it's a. It was a very, uh, a very nice honor. The uh, family, uh, the estate of Ian Fleming, contacted me about uh, oh, about six six months ago, and asked if I would be interested in doing it. And I uh, just leapt at the chance. Um, we've been in uh, discussions for uh, some time about it, and I'm I'm writing the book right now. It. I can't say too much about it, uh, mostly because it's a work in progress. But I can say this: it is set in. It will be published in 2011, next um, May, and it, it it takes place in the present day. It takes place in 2011, and Bond will be a um, a young uh, secret agent for the uh, British government. He will be um, about 29 or 30 years old, and just as the original Bond, Fleming's creation, had been a, a veteran of World War II. My bond will be a veteran of the Afghan campaign, which uh, England was involved in from the very beginning. And he'll be doing the same double O stuff that uh, we know from the uh, books and the uh, movies. He will be more true to the books than the movies, though, because the the character in the original novels was uh, very complex. Bond was dark. He was a um, uh, very much a, a patriot, very much a hero, but he also had a very edgy side to him. And um, if you know Bond only from the the movies, uh, this uh, this character I'm creating is a uh, is a bit uh, is is a bit different. 
but the story will be a combination of the the bond that Fleming created and then my type of story, which I described earlier, the fast pacing, uh, the esoteric information, big surprise ending, and so on. And it's it's been great fun to write. I'm, I'm enjoying it very much. I can't wait. Well, I know we've caught you between trips, and I always have trouble ending our interviews. <laughs> yes, yeah, I know. We could just well, it's just I keep ever. forgetting we're even recording this. I know. <laughs> we're having fun chatting, aren't we? <laughs> I know we do. And yeah, I never structure. I mean, I sit here. I've got bullet points with characters' names and everything just to make sure I can remember who's who. But mm-hmm. we talk and we have a conversation, and I always think that is so much more interesting for someone listening because. When did they really have an opportunity to hear your voice, Jeff, and what you really think about your work and what you're doing with your work? I mean, I think you're just so interesting to talk to, and well, I know our listeners feel the same way. Well, I, I, I hope so, but I have to say that, it's uh, Cheryl, it's your enthusiasm that drives that along because, I've, as you can imagine, I've done uh, many, many uh, interviews and been in many, many discussions over the over the years, and it's just never quite as much fun as with you. Let me put it that way. I love it. Oh, gee, <laughs> thanks, Jeffrey. <laughs> well, if our listeners want to know more about you, more about The Burning Wire, more about The Bond Project, let's give them the website. Sure. The best uh, place to find out uh, about me is uh, www.jeffreydever.com. The name, by the way, is spelled J-E-F-F-E-R-Y, Deaver.com. That's a slightly different spelling, although I bought the two URLs, so so one kicks you over into the other if you spell it differently. But uh, in these days of algorithms and Google, uh, you probably aren't even going to have to type something in anymore. All you're going to have to do is think the name, and then all of a sudden it'll show up on your computer. So you know, I think we are coming to that. I really uh, do. It Maybe might be an be idea a... for a new book. Who knows? Exactly, <laughs> <laughs> Jeff. I know we've caught you between trips, and thank you so very much for spending so much time with me today. It's always a pleasure to talk to you and travel safely. Enjoyed it immensely, Cheryl. Take care now. And we'd like to thank you, our listeners, for being with us today. And remember, until you join us next time, pick up a good book and read.